Church, it's so good to be here with all of you. Let's stand and invite the Lord uh, before we go into his word. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we acknowledge that unless you fill us with your spirit, unless you enlighten our hearts with your spirit, we can't understand your truths, Lord. I pray that you would kindle in our hearts a love for you, Lord. Help us grasp you, see you, see your glory, God, and be transformed by it, Lord. And for those who have not yet tasted and seen how good you are, I pray that you would do that miracle today. We thank you and we pray this all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Before we go into our passage, I want you to try to guess who I'm about to describe for you, okay? So just a quick guess who for everyone. He was widely regarded as one of the greatest military strategists in history. He rose to power in the late 18th century. Over the course of his career, led many victories uh, in battle, right, across several continents, Europe, North Africa, Middle East, And his campaigns and his tactics were categorized by rapid movement, by decisive action, innovative tactics, and he was famous for his ability to outmaneuver and outsmart his opponents. In fact, he introduced also a number of key military reforms which still have an impact today. This man was truly, truly a genius. Anybody want to guess who it was? Napoleon, yes, thank you. Napoleon, right there. There you go, that beautiful painting of Napoleon. To this day, he was so good that his legacy as a strategist and military innovator is still abides, right? It's enduring. And, and his several, you know, his thoughts and his tactics, they continue to influence military thinking. And his campaign was meticulously planned, right? With exhaustive preparations, supplying, feeding his troops, logistics, as they marched across the vast Russian landscape. And however, as the campaign wore on, Napoleon became increasingly preoccupied with the details of the logistics. And he lost sight of the bigger strategic picture. He became fixated with the idea of of capturing Moscow, right? The symbolic heart of the Russian Empire. And despite the advice of his generals, who warned of the dangers of such an endeavor, he continued to press on ahead with the attack until he actually succeeded in capturing the city in September of 1812. However... By this point, Napoleon's army has already been weakened, demoralized by the long march, and the long, harsh Russian winter was settling in. And as a result, even though his troops took the city, they weren't able to sustain themselves in the city, and so they were forced to withdraw back towards Europe. And what happened is that the retreat was a complete disaster with thousands of his men dying of cold, starvations, and attacks from enemy forces. And by the time the campaign had ended, Napoleon had lost the vast majority of his 
great army. And his once great empire was now in ruins. Napoleon was a genius of a strategist, but because he got so caught up in the minutia, in the details, he lost sight of the bigger picture. And because of that, he lost everything. Today, as we are going to look at 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to be talking about God's wisdom, the wisdom that God gives to his people, to his children, to us, graciously. And unlike Napoleon, who was a strategic genius, right? Who, and yet he still missed the mark. Unlike Napoleon, God's wisdom truly allows us to see the big picture. The big picture, not just of warfare or running a company or running a nation or an empire or a family or a relationship, but the, but the big picture of all of life, of ultimate reality. And with that wisdom that God gives us, we will never miss the mark. So open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to start with verse 6. And, I'll, and as you're opening to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, please, again, open it up because we're going to read it together in your Bibles. As you're opening up your Bibles, the context, if you remember, if you were here last week, as we're going through 1 Corinthians Paul was talking about how the gospel and the message of the cross, how it's foolishness to those who are perishing, right? It's, it's the weakness of God. It's the foolishness of God. So he, Paul's talking about how message is cross. It's foolish, foolish, foolish. And, and you think like, well, well, the whole Christian message is just all foolish, right? If you would, would have stopped there and not go on through Corinthians chapter 2, you'd think it's all foolish. But then Paul kind of says, no, but it's, but it's not all foolish. And that's where we pick up on verse 6. So 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, 2, 6, he says, yet among the wise we do impart wisdom. That means there is wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
So let's go, up, go back to verse 6, starting with verse 6 for the slides. We're just going to go through verse by verse and say, what is God telling us here from his word? Let's, let's open his word up together and let us reason. So verse 6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We're going to look at the verses 6 through 16, verse by verse, and then we're going to talk about the big idea that's found in there. So Notice Paul is comparing, if you look at the text, he's comparing the wisdom of God with the wisdom of what? Of this age, right? The wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this age, which the rulers had, Pilate and the chief priests and the religious rulers of Jerusalem who crucified Jesus, it says that it is doomed to pass away, right? Those rulers are doomed to pass away, meaning the wisdom of this world, it will ultimately fail. It is in vain. And he contrasts that. Let's go to verse 7. He contrasts that. He says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, You see that contrast? So instead of doom, instead of destruction, instead of death, God's wisdom leads to glory. Wisdom of the age leads to doom. Wisdom of God leads to glory. Second Corinthians, church, this is an amazing truth. Just just let this sink into your hearts. I know we hear it all the time. But, but I want you to, instead of just hearing it, I want you to actually take it and just chew it and let it sink into your heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For those of us who love Christ, church, friends, we are we have an eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. And that's going to be the state that we're going to be in forever. First Peter 5, 1, Peter says that I, with you, am a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. God is preparing for us glory. In fact, it's going, to be, it's going to be amazing, and we're going to be there in eternity. And C.S. Lewis writing about this glory, thinking what the Bible says about this glory, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says that the dullest person you know, the most unimpressive person you know, when, if he's going to be in heaven, he's going to be, if you would see him as he is in glory, he's going to be so glorious that you would be tempted to worship him. And we see that happen, don't we? In the book of Revelation, when John seen the angel, he fell before him and began to worship him. And the angel says, don't worship me, worship God. And yet, God is preparing such glory for all of us. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have the wisdom that God gives to his children, if you're a saint, if you believed in him, church, just take heart. I know this life might not seem glorious right now, today. It might seem so ordinary and plain, but God has decreed wisdom before the ages for our glory. And if we can go to the next slide, I want to focus on this phrase, before the ages. This is a very interesting phrase. Again, he's doing a contrast, right? He's contrasting before the ages with what? What is he contrasting with? 
the rulers of this age, right? There's before the ages, and then there's this age. Their wisdom might work in this age, and it might be great in this age, and it might help them be prosperous in this age. But God, for his children, has prepared a wisdom before the ages. You know, there's like, you know, they say, hey, this is, this is a... A time-tested method, right? This is like, this has worked all the time. This has stood the test of time. Or it might be like, this is some ancient wisdom from the Egyptians and something. You're like, whoa, this is so amazing, right? Uh, There must be a lot of truth to this. And the Bible just one-ups all of that and just says, no, no, the wisdom that God gives to his is not just time-tested or not just ancient. It came before creation, It's before the ages, before time began, God has decreed that wisdom for us. Next slide, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Meaning, the wisdom that God has prepared before the ages for our glory, it's inaccessible for humans just regularly, right? Even the smartest people, the rulers of this age, they could not grasp it. They could not understand it because if they would have, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory, which if you think about it, is the greatest failure ever. (laughs) The maker, your maker, imagine your maker coming into this world, your creator, and instead of falling before him and worshiping him, You reject him, you cast him aside, and you crucify him. You've obviously missed something if you did that. And that's what he's saying. This wisdom is inaccessible to normal people. That's why Jesus says in Luke 10, 21, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Let's go to the next slide. This is one of the most misquoted verses that we're about to read right now. Verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has, prepared, has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Paul is quoting Isaiah, and he's saying God has prepared something for us, right? Which no fleshly person can grasp. Fleshly, normal, fleshly, without the Spirit, right? And, and we always kind of rip this out of context and say, well, it's talking about heaven, right? Uh, like what God has prepared for those who love, but they never read like that very next phrase, but these things God has revealed. So those things that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart has imagined, they've actually been revealed to us. And maybe heaven does, is included in this, but it's not just talking about heaven. If you look at the immediate context, it's talking about the wisdom of God, the wisdom from the spirit of God. And the fleshly people, they can't understand it just like the rulers, but God has revealed it to us, to those who have the spirit. Again, what are these things? It's the wisdom of God, the deep truths about God, about us, about eternity, about life, about sin, about salvation, about the purpose of life. 
And all of these things are revealed to us through the Spirit because the Spirit, notice, the Spirit is revealing things to us from where? From the depths of God. The Spirit is searching the depths of God and He is giving us truth and wisdom from the very depths of God Himself. Church, this is just beyond awesome. If you think about the privilege that God gives us, not only can we actually know about God, right? We could have existed in a world where we didn't even know that we're created. Just don't even have that thought at all. We're just completely oblivious to God. Not only do we know about God, but we who have the Spirit, we have inside information even from the depths of God himself. Because the same spirit that is in God is the same spirit that lives inside us. You can't have wisdom that's deeper than that which comes from the depth of God himself. And we're going to go back to this in verse 16. But Let's read verse 11 together. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Again, Paul is reinforcing this fact that only, the, only we can understand the deep things of God through the spirit of God, which we have. Next slide, verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. In other words, Paul is saying, we're not teaching this deep wisdom of God, you know, in philosophical terms, you know, in, in whatever, whatever the world's talking about, in all these concepts. No, we're just interpreting spiritual truths. Someone is spiritual, if they have the Spirit of God, we can start talking about the things of God, and it's going to make sense to them. And I'm sure you guys have made, maybe even had this happen before, where you meet someone, and you probably known them for 10 minutes, but you start talking, and you see like, man, this person has the Spirit of God living in them, and you feel like you've known them your whole life, right? Because that same Spirit that's been living in you ever since you've been born again has been living in them and has been revealing the same thing, and you're so on the same page. That's what he's talking about. And from the outside, if you don't have the Spirit, you can't understand that at all. But those who know, they know. If you get it, you get it, Right? Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, again, if they don't have the Spirit, they can't understand God's wisdom. It seems foolish, silly to them, right? But if someone does have the Spirit, it makes total sense. The Spirit is the prerequisite to be able to receive the wisdom of God. It's like, imagine, just to give you an analogy, imagine the person sitting next to you was blind from birth. Blind from birth. Now turn to your neighbor and try to explain to them the color red, right? The color red. How would you explain? Just think about that. Um... Yeah, it's like, I mean, how would you? You can't, right? You can't even, and you think about it, the red is so simple, right? It's something so basic. 
And yet there are no words. You can use a million words and they're still not going to come any closer to understanding the color red if they were blind from birth. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying people who don't have the spirit of God, they're like blind from birth. They never even seen the world in this way. And there's no way that it's going to make sense. You're just going to look like a fool trying to explain yourself. It's... uh, uh, yeah, I don't know how to explain it, right? Like, you literally can't, and it seems foolish. Unless something changes in here, you can't explain the color red. But once someone has vision, right, you just point to it. Like, there, in that, you know, from that window, that's red. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, it makes sense. There's a story by H.G. Wells. It's called The Country of the Blind. Anybody ever heard of it before? It's a great, great story. Um, It was written long ago, but he, I'll, I'll just read the synopsis for you. It says, while attempting to climb the unconquered crest of a fictitious mountain, Ecuador, a mountaineer named Nunes slips and falls down a far side of the mountain. At the end of his descent, down a snow slope, in the mountain's shadow, he finds a valley cut off from the rest of the world on all sides by steep precipices. Unknown to Nunes, he has discovered the mythological country of the blind. The valley had been a haven for settlers fleeing from the tyranny of Spanish rulers until an earthquake reshaped the surrounding mountains, cutting the valley off forever from future explorers. The isolated community prospered over the years, despite a disease that struck them early on, rendering all newborns blind. And as the blindness slowly spread over many generations, the people's remaining senses were sharpened, and by the time the last villager with vision had died, the community had fully adapted to living without sight." And Nunez descends into the valley, finds an unusual village with windowless houses and a network of paths, all bordering with rails and curbs. And upon discovering that everyone is blind, Nunez begins to recite to himself the proverb, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? So he thinks he can rule them, right? And, And he thinks he can teach them. But the villagers, they have no concept of sight, and, and they do not understand his attempts to explain this fifth sense to them. Frustrated, Nunez becomes angry, but the villagers calm him down. And he reluctantly submits to their way of life because returning to the outside world seems impossible. Nunez is assigned to work for a farmer named Jacob. And he becomes attracted to Jacob's youngest daughter, Medina. And Medina and Nunez soon fall in love, and having won her confidence, Nunez slowly starts trying to explain sight to her. Medina, however, simply dismisses it as his imagination, and when Nunez asks for her hand in marriage, he is turned down by the village elders because of his unstable obsession with sight. The village doctor suggests that Nunez's eyes actually get removed we can go to the next slide, claiming that they're diseased, right? And, and they're causing his brain to be in a constant state of irritation and distraction. Reluctantly, Nunez agrees to the operation because of his love for Medina. However, at sunrise, on the day of his operation, while all the villagers are sleeping, 
Nunez, the failed king of the country of the blind, sets off for the mountains without equipment, without food, hoping to find a way to escape from this village. You know, I, I don't know if you guys were paying attention, but the, the analogy is just profound, isn't it? To spiritual reality, right? The word of God says the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And that's those who have trusted in Christ, those who have that spiritual sight, who have the wisdom of God, it makes sense. You're like, I know exactly what this is. But to the rest of the world who is blind to God, all these things, they seem foolish and crazy, don't they, right? It's like, yeah, well, I don't know. I just have peace. God is leaving. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Red, blue, green. You're like, dude, something's really wrong. In fact, your eyes are causing you a problem, right? This religion thing, it's causing all these problems, right? And if it wasn't for religion, you wouldn't be speaking out against all these things. But by God's grace, we have true sight, just like Nunez. Verse 15, going on to the next verse, it says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of God and our eyes have been opened. And this person who has had his eyes open, he's, he judges all things, the word of God says. Not that he sits there and criticizes everyone, right? But in the sense that he evaluates, properly understands, properly weighs all things because he's the only one that has true sight, the true wisdom of God and says, but is himself to be judged by no one. Like the, the blind people in, the, in that story, they couldn't properly understand Nunez. They couldn't because they didn't have that sight. But Nunez was able to properly understand the situation and then Paul reinforces this point in verse 15 with verse 16. Again, quoting Isaiah 40, 13, he says, no one can understand the mind of God, but we have the mind of Christ. Meaning the outside world can never understand God and we share in the mind of God so no one can truly ever understand us as Christians. It's like the advantage of, you know, those you know those shows about, you know, a person did the crime and they put him into the interrogation room with a one-way mirror, right? The person that's sitting behind the mirror, right, looking at the whole thing, they have a fundamental advantage because they can see the person, they can see their reaction, they can see everything, whereas the person sitting in the room being interrogated can't understand and properly evaluate the other person because they can't even see them. It's like that one-way mirror. That's what God has given to us in his wisdom. So, now the question is, what's the big idea of all of this? And the big idea, it's simple, but God has given us as his children, his wisdom. And we as Christians, we have the most significant grasp of reality. Even if it's not the most detailed in all the little things, we have the most significant I use that word specifically, significant grasp of reality. We see the big picture, the big picture about life, the big picture about ourselves, the big picture about relationships, about sin and repentance and eternity. We see all of that, and that wisdom will lead us into glory. 
As Christians, we are the only people that are able to truly understand reality in the most important way possible when compared to other people. Meaning there could be really smart people in this world, but if they don't know Christ, if they don't have his mind, if they are not filled with the spirit, then they are missing the big picture. Or you could say the biggest picture, right? And I don't say this in a boastful way. It's not like, you know, we as Christians sat there and we like thought about it, you know, and we like figured it out, right? It was a puzzle that we were working on and we figured it out. No, the wisdom that God gives us as Christians, it is purely by God's grace. There is no room for boasting. And in fact, Paul just talked about in the few verses before, he says, we, who was wise when you became a Christian? Most of us, we're average, right? We're average, and, and yet God has entrusted such a wisdom to all of us. We have the most accurate understanding of reality. Again, maybe not the most complete in certain spheres, but we understand the most meaningful things about this world. There are extremely smart unbelievers in this world, but in the grand scheme of things, their wisdom, like Napoleon's genius, is too narrow. It's too short-sighted. Because like Jesus says, right? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, right? If he has the wisdom to take over the entire world and subdue it for generations and generations, if he has that sort of intelligence and wisdom, if he gains all of those things and yet he loses his soul, what gain is that? What, what's the profit in that, right? It's, it's, it's foolish. Napoleon occupied Moscow, but he lost his empire. He was penny wise, pound foolish. Only through the ancient, timeless wisdom of God are we able to attain the only things that actually matter in the grand scheme of things. Eternal life with God, with eternal happiness. Church, friend, if you haven't yet discovered it, the only way you can get that is through Christ. Right? And there's nothing more that we as people crave so desperately than to live forever and to be happy all those days of forever. And yet, God gives it freely to us through his wisdom. And that's the only way to reach that. It's not technology. It's not advancements in medicine, in AI. Chat GPT isn't going to help you live forever. Right? None of those things will save us. Only Jesus Christ. And that's the glory that verse 7 talks about, right? What a gift. We who are average. Church, just again, I'm not, I'm not saying this so you'll just hear it, but I want you to think about it, and I want it to go into the bottom of your hearts. We who are average, just regular people, God has had mercy upon us, and he reveals to us his own mind, his own secrets, his own wisdom, so that we can reach glory. Friend, if you haven't discovered the purpose of, your, of the universe, the purpose of your life, you can spend your entire life searching high and low. You can become the smartest, the richest, the most powerful, and yet you will never find that thing that all of us so desperately crave, eternal life and eternal 
happiness. You will never find it apart from Christ. He is the answer. Come to him. Trust in him and he will lead you. So God gives us an ancient wisdom and God helps us see the biggest picture which leads us to glory. And now let's read together the last four verses. And and again, just to summarize, Paul's talking about wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. And you're like, wow, this is amazing that God gives us all these things. And then all of a sudden, Paul takes another unexpected turn, right? That, you know, you weren't buckled up and you maybe you're going to bump your head right now because in verse one of chapter three, he says, but I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Man, that hurts. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Let's go to the next slide. Man, this is it's like a slap in the face, isn't it? But the main point here, not only does God give us that wisdom, but true wisdom from God, true maturity always results in a deep-rooted change from human and fleshly ways to godly ways. That's true wisdom, church. It's not just knowing some facts in your head. You know, our, our, our culture is all about like more information, more knowledge, faster, right? And I fall victim to that as well, right? Like I'm addicted to listening to videos on 2X. Like I can't listen to videos at 1X speed, right? I have to do 2X now, right? All the lectures and everything. I just, I can't. And it's funny because when you see your seminary professor in real life, you're like, wow, he is so slow at talking. <laughs> and, and we think that, oh, the more I, more of these like podcasts, more of these things that I can listen to faster, the more knowledge I can get, the smarter I'm going to be. But we know that we, we have an overabundance, right, of content, an overabundance of facts and smart things and good things that we can spend the rest of our life listening to and still not finish even probably 1% of everything that's being produced. But unless we actually apply that knowledge that God has given us, that wisdom. It's actually useless to us, church. You know, digging with a shovel is slow, right? If you watch excavators, like how quickly they can dig, right? It's really fast. But just because you have an excavator doesn't mean you're going to have you're going to be able to dig faster unless you're actually using the excavator right like you actually need to put that excavator to use you can't just say well i've got an excavator it's not going to do its job for you you still need to sit down and you still need to do the work of operating that heavy machinery i remember this one guy was telling me uh years ago he was like yeah so i've you know i'm trying to get better at time management and uh, I, I can't, you know, and, you know, th- it's just, yeah, I'm really, like, struggling with it. I'm like, dude, you should, read a, you should read a book about time management, you know? And he's like, oh, I have. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, I've read seven of them. 
and I'll be honest, like, I'm not proud of this, but I was jealous when he said that because I'm like, man, how does this guy have, how is he able to read seven time management books? Like, I've read half of one, right? And, and, but it really helped me with time management. So I'm like, maybe he's reading the wrong books. You know, I'm like, well, have you read, you know, this one book, The Time Trap? He's like, oh yeah, I've read that one. I'm like, wait, you read it? But it, I mean, it really helped me. Why didn't it help you? Uh, and I'm like, did you do like, you know, because they basically he tells you, you actually have to take a log of everything you do, your start times, stop times, and you got to add it all up. It's very meticulous work. I'm like, did you do that? He's like, oh, no, I didn't think that was going to work. <laughs> I'm like, that's what changed it for me, right? So what use is there if you read all the books, you have all the knowledge, but then you just brush it all aside when, when it comes time to actually do what that knowledge is telling you to do. And that's what we see here in verse, verses 1 through 4. The Corinthians' failure to attain to this wisdom. God provides it for them. And he provides this wisdom to all of us as his children as well. But unless, church, please hear me on this, unless that wisdom goes into us and changes us from the inside out, it's in vain. I don't want you walking away thinking, wow, God gave me this wisdom from the depths of God himself, and then you just go back to your normal ways. If that's the case, then you don't have that wisdom because, you're, because that wisdom isn't living itself out through you. And that's why Paul says, but I could not address you as these spiritual people that we just talked about. You are still, quote, people of the flesh, You are infants in Christ. You're not ready for solid food, but for milk. Why were they not ready? Is it because the Corinthians were especially illiterate compared to all the other Christians of the Roman Empire? Probably not. Because they didn't go to college? Because they couldn't intellectually grasp the deep theological concepts that Paul was delivering to them? No. Verse three, while there is jealousy and strife among you. Well, that's not intellectual at all. True wisdom and maturity in a person is not measured by how many facts he can tell you, but how he lives that wisdom out through his behavior and decisions. I'm going to say that again. True wisdom, church. It's not by how many facts, how, how, much, how many Bible verses you can recite to me, although that's a really good thing and all of us should memorize scripture. But that's not the true measure of wisdom and maturity. It's by how that word and that knowledge actually lives itself out through us through our decisions, and through our behaviors. Church, we can listen to the greatest sermons ever, best preachers ever. We can get straight A's in seminary and learn all the theological terms and books, and we can memorize the entire Bible. And yet, unless it actually goes inside of us, and it actually changes what we do and the decisions we make and the way we speak and the way we treat one another, it's in vain. We're still just as immature as we started, maybe even worse because we think we're better than we really are. It might be in here, but it's not in here. 
Paul mentions that the Corinthians still had jealousy and strife, verse three, right? Jealousy and strife. And three times in the first four verses, he uses the word flesh or fleshly. Jealousy, strife, flesh. That really reminds me of another passage. What passage? Anyone want to call it out? Well, if someone's saying it in their heart, it's Galatians 5. Galatians 5, right? This is a good way to test spiritual maturity, right? Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, fighting with one another, strife, jealousy. Does that sound familiar? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this, things that are similar to this. That, church, this is a very easy way to test our spiritual maturity. And then verses 22 and through 23 gives us the positive, right? But the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We cannot, if we think we're mature in Christ, but our life is not a reflection of verses 22 through 23, but it's more of a reflection of verses 19 through 21, then we're not mature. Then we're just, we're lying to our own selves. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to completely rethink the way that we measure maturity and wisdom. Having knowledge is extremely important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't read your Bibles. No, read your Bibles. Get that knowledge. But we can't just stop at having that knowledge. Oh, I've heard it. It landed in my brain. I can even recite it. I can tell you exactly. You know, sometimes you're talking to someone and and they're kind of on their phone. And you're like, what did I just say? Oh, and that you said this, 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 and they'll, they'll repeat exactly what you said, but they don't actually understand the big idea that you're going to. And that's how we treat God often, don't we? We're just doing our own little thing. It's like, what did I just say? Oh, uh, fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay, you said it, but is that evident in your life? Are you actually understanding it and living it out? Or are you just like a parrot who's just repeating words. Don't get me wrong. Knowledge is very important, church, but it's only half the story. It's only half the story. So in closing, as we call up the band, I just want to summarize. God has given us something so awesome, something so marvelous, wisdom that comes to us before time began before creation, before the ages. And that wisdom that God has decreed for us, church, it's going to lead us to glory. That eternal presence of God, the thing that we most desperately all crave and desire and long for. And so often we're so misguided seeking that glory here on earth, but in reality, the only place it is, is in heaven. With this wisdom, we can see the real big picture of this world, the biggest picture. 
We're able to accurately evaluate all things, but unless that wisdom is applied and it produces real behavioral change in us, church, a true imitation of Christ, then we're not mature. We're not wise. And to close, I want to read a quote from Augustine of Hippo. He's writing about Christian doctrine. He said, St. Augustine, so anyone who thinks he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up this double love of God and neighbor has not yet succeeded in understanding them. Church, this is what we're called to. Let's stand and let's pray that God would help us. I want to give you a few minutes, a minute of response time. Just pray through what maybe God is putting on your heart right now. Jesus, we come before you, God, and we understand that we can't change ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we're just in need of your grace. Not just to understand it, but to truly be changed by it, Lord. And I pray that we would be a people who love you, Lord. That we would be a people that reflect and, and possess the fruits of the Spirit. God, I pray that we would have this wisdom and that we would pass it on to others. And I pray for those who have no knowledge of you, who don't know you, who have never met you, even though they might have been going to church their whole life. I pray that you reveal these things to them, that they would know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.